1: From KQED.
0: Mic check, check one, check two. Are we here? All right, we're here. Right now-ish. Welcome to Right Now-ish. I'm your host, Pindarvis Hardshaw. Today, we're going to bring you into a scene that's all too common. It's Saturday morning. Between 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. And you can hear screaming. A couple of your family members are in front of your residence. And they're arguing you can sense tensions are rising. You've witnessed this before, a minor disagreement that triggers underlying issues and compressed emotions. You don't want to overreact, but you can tell it's getting contested. You even hear bottles or some sort of glass being thrown and shattered. Not necessarily out of fear, but as a safety precaution, you reach for your phone. Instead of calling 911, you call 510 999 9644. Mental Health First is a service that relies on mental health care workers as first responders in Oakland. The trained operators work to either advise callers through a situation or, if need be, they dispatch someone to a location in an effort to de escalate an issue.
2: Mental Health First is a non 911 response to mental health crisis. It was born out of the Anti Police Terror Project Sacramento chapter in January.
0: That's Kat Brooks. She ran for mayor of Oakland in 2018. She's also the executive director of Justice Teams Network, which is a California-based collaboration of organizers working to end police violence. Mental Health First recently expanded its services to Oakland. Kat says they've trained hundreds of volunteers, many of them doctors, psychologists, registered nurses, and therapists, working their hotlines and responding to emergencies. What you're promised is
2: participant-centered, participant-determined care. And what we mean by that is that we're not gonna tell you what to do. (laughs) We're gonna work with you to identify your safety plan. We are available on the weekends uh, in Oakland, Saturday and Sunday from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. A, we know that weekends are high stress times um, for our folks. They're also when we see a lot of engagement between law enforcement and our people. Um, and also because at the county level, there's just no services available at that time. I mean, I, we say it facetiously, but if you're fortunate enough to have your mental health breakdown between the hours of nine to five on Monday through Friday, you might get some help. Other than that, you know, it's 911. It's, it's gonna be the
0: boys in blue that show up to deal with you. More from Kat Brooks on how she was politicized and police unions co-opting the language of community organizers. It's complicated. Stay on the line. We're going to talk more about Kat and the big organizing lessons that she's learned in her career. But first, we got to discuss the need to change the way that we're being police, because that's urgent. Well, I'll just ask you blatantly, like, why not go through established police departments?
2: Well, like I said, nationally, one in four people that are gunned down by law enforcement are in the middle of a mental health crisis. Police are not trained, um, and nor, nor do they actually want to do this work. Oakland Police Department, um, will say, well, we've got crisis intervention training in municipalities across the country. It's usually eight to 15 hours. To be a mental health professional requires actually thousands of hours <laughs> before you can professionally work with someone. The other reason why is that police are are trained to force compliance and to do that through violence and force if necessary, right? And so your job when law enforcement shows up is to do what they say, when they say it, how fast they say it, and the way in which they say it. And just not doing any of those things can get somebody seriously injured and or killed as we see, you know, daily. People in mental health crisis or who may not be sharing our reality often cannot respond to those commands, do not understand those commands, um, which law enforcement is trained to see as somebody resisting. When you look at the numbers of who's languishing in American jails and prisons, you're talking vastly people that are dealing with mental health issues, substance abuse issues, you know, and or have committed what we call you know, crimes of, of survival. And so our stance is that our people need compassion and care, not cops in cages. Because of the way that we've stigmatized and demonized mental health crisis, it usually results in incarceration. We talk about people, you know, being in mental health crisis. A lot of times what we're having are mental health moments. And I say often, I don't know how you're black or brown or indigenous or poor in this country and you're not having mental health moments. And what we've seen particularly right now, you know, in the middle of this pandemic is people are having more and more of those moments, right? Because people are losing their jobs and they're losing their housing or they're sick or they're afraid of getting sick or they're losing loved ones to this virus or they're essential workers. I mean, there's all of the stressors that go along um, with this particular moment in time. And sometimes people just need to be heard, right? They just need to be listen to, they need someone to talk to them.
0: This is something you've uh, written about recently in the San Francisco Examiner. Uh, You mentioned how local police unions in the Bay Area have co-opted some of the language that yourself and other organizers have been using in terms of community policing. For somebody who's not introduced to the work, why is that significant?
2: Well, when you start to see your opponent not condemn your message, but co-opt it, then you know that you're doing something right. You know that it's resonating. You know that they're clear that they have to shift strategy and that actually that the public debate has been impacted in a particular way. I think it's something that's really interesting to clock is that, you know, 2014 to 2016-ish, when we saw the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, what we saw was the rise of the Blue Lives Matter movement, right? And, And a lot of the messaging was about how dangerous it is to be a police officer the demonization of protesters, things like that. And I think it's a testament to the organizing that has happened over the last few years that they weren't able to do that this time. We've seen enough dead bodies, we've seen enough protests, we've done a good enough job in the media. We have been taught from very young ages, myself included, that cops are the good guys. They get the kittens out of the tree. That's who keeps us safe. There are folks who still believe that you know if we do enough trainings, if we do enough body cameras, if we do enough reforms, if we shift use of force policies, that maybe things will get better. And when that messaging is coming out of law enforcement and they're promising to do that thing, I think it's easier for some people to put their faith in the system that they know, even though it doesn't work. And that's what I think this moment is begging of us, is demanding of us, is that we completely reimagine what public safety looks like. That we're committed to completely transforming the way in which we keep our community safe. And it's time that we do something radically and dramatically different when it comes to public safety in our communities.
0: It's uh, a larger conversation that has to do with redirecting funds toward different aspects of society that could lead to people not having to call the police. When you start to pull the threads away at defunding the police, like what, what's the first brick that you have to move in order to get there?
2: Building what we call small replicable models. It's uh, on us as organizers to show the people something different that you can have a response to mental health like Mental Health First that doesn't rely on law enforcement and that keeps people safe and keeps families together you've got to build a movement. I mean, I think it's important to understand, at least within the context of Oakland, that defund OPD is not a new phrase. That campaign was started by the Anti-Police Terror Project five years ago, and we were laughed out of rooms. <laughs> and so organizing is important, Penn, and impacting the public debate is important, Penn. And, and and I'll cop to this, it might have been a bad comms move to call it defund police, because I think that people hear that and they're like, ah, We should have led with the refund community. We really are talking about using data-driven strategies, techniques, practices, and policies to divest from things that we don't need law enforcement to do and invest in things that actually keep us safe.
0: You're talking about something that, one, you have to unlearn something you've been taught, and two, you have to introduce a whole new concept, a whole new way of operating. I wanted to ask you about yourself and your involvement in the work. Like, As long as I've known you, this is the work that you've been doing, and like, bring me back to the roots. What was the thing that set you off? How'd you get started down this path? Oscar Grant. I had
2: left town to go home to Las Vegas um, for the holidays. I was driving back up and I was stopped at the corner of 14th and Alice. This brother, like, he waved me down and he was like, sister, where's the rally? And I was like, what rally? And he said, for that brother they killed. And I literally, one state over, had no idea what he was talking about. I wasn't on social like that at the time. But ran upstairs and Put in, you know, Oscar's name or cops, bart police, kill, whatever I googled, and there he was. And I talk about that as being my enough moment. You know, I cried and I was sick and I, like I still tear up when I think about it. Um, I had just had it. Like, and I, my daughter was, you know, this big, and I remember just holding her and being like, "I'm done with this."
0: I don't think as long as I've, we've crossed paths, I don't think I've really known that and. That's where I got started, largely with journalism.
2: And I think that's an important time period to talk about, Penn, because the last 10 years of the work around police violence in this country got set off with the three-year protracted struggle for justice for Oscar here in the city of Oakland. And the work that we've done, both in terms of our organizing, but also policy and practice, has reverberated across the country. Like, the city is really a vanguard, which is also why it's so important that if we're going to do defund, we get defund right Right. If we're going to do mental health response that doesn't lead with law enforcement, we need to get it right because other cities are going to follow our lead. And so we're not just talking about saving the lives of Oaklanders or or folks in the Bay Area. We're literally talking about saving the lives of black and brown folks across the country.
0: Get it right. Before that, before Oscar Grant, were there any seeds planted in you earlier in your childhood that you could date back to in terms of the work that you do now?
2: Folks may or may not know, you know, I was born in Las Vegas. And a lot of people think about Las Vegas and they think, you know, casinos and, you know, the strip and, and all that stuff. But Vegas was a small segregated town. And the black folks lived on one side and the white folks lived on the other side. My father was continuously harassed and, and followed and targeted by Las Vegas Metro. I grew up with stories about, you know, cops taking black folks to the desert. And so I knew at a very young age that the cops were not my friend. And then my father had a substance abuse problem, and he ultimately went to prison for that. And I remember being a kid, I couldn't articulate it like I can now, but what I was clear about was that he needed help, that he was sick, right, that he didn't need a cage, he didn't need to be locked away, he didn't need to be away from his family, away from me. And then as I grew up, um, you know, and it started being pulled over by police myself, the first time I was threatened with rape was by a Las Vegas metropolitan police officer. I think as black people, we start our lives in this country either witnessing or hearing about police relationship to our communities. And then as we get older, we have our own lived experience of that violence. We live hunted. Black people in this country live hunted. And law enforcement are the first in line of that, of that hunting crusade.
0: I, that, that's a lot of political awakening to, to both experience and to read about. And it all culminated in you running for mayor in Oakland. Would you ever plan to run for mayor again?
2: You know, the the truth is is that it's high, it's a high possibility that I will run again. But it's also very determinant on the conditions. And so in 2018, it made sense. It made political sense. And then more importantly, Penn, is that people asked me to run. Like, I didn't wake up and decide, you know, I want to be mayor. I want to run for mayor or, I can't think of a day ever that I've woken up and said, I want a career in politics. And I feel like it wasn't me running for mayor. It was the city running for mayor. It was us running for mayor. It was the people running for mayor. We built our platform with the people. But who knows what things are going to look like in 2021 or what Oakland will need. And Oakland may not need me or our brand of politics. It may need something else.
0: Before we go, I want you to hear excerpts of this speech from Cat Brooks. It was recorded on September 24th, the day after the courts in Louisville failed to hold Breonna Taylor's killers accountable for her death. Kat spoke about Breonna, Oscar Grant, and police brutality as a whole.
2: When my daughter was two years old, Oscar Grant was gunned down like an animal at the Fruitvale BART station. And I wrote a piece called for Oscar. I was in the streets every single night. I didn't know how to explain to her that yet one more black man was dead. I didn't know how to explain to her why I wasn't cooking dinner for her, but instead I was standing off with with cops with this brother and others making sure that we were okay, demanding his justice. I didn't know what to say to her. And so this is what I say to my daughter today, if you're going to burn America, then burn. I am growing weary of waiting. And I don't mean these piddly brush fires popping up in urban centers across the country in the aftermath of righteous rage and protest. I mean uncontrollable, unstoppable, intentional flames determined to turn injustice into ash to burn this system to the ground and make way for something else, anything else, anything but this. I'm tired of being spit on, shit on, lied to, and lynched and gaslit. Let the flames burn. Flames that cannot be outed by threats of arrest or martial law because we're not scared of that no more because nothing is scarier than waking up and walking each and every day black in America. If you claim these are your streets, my people, then take them and refuse to give them back until every life they have stolen from us is accounted for, is avenged until their names roll off the tongues of your countrymen like their fucking Pledge of Allegiance to this country that won't stop killing us, yet demands our loyalty, our labor, and our love. She, America, this great democracy, is the narcissistic abuser who manipulates and fucks, artfully gaslighting us into believing that our reality is fantasy made up in the minds of those discontented for no reason at all. And today we are told that holes and walls matter more than holes shot through a sleeping black woman's body in our own goddamn home. Once again, it is affirmed that the following things are a crime while black pay attention. Breathing, living, walking, loving, resting, working, shopping, driving, texting, talking, eating, sleeping, sleeping, sleeping is a crime if you're black, female, educated, employed, and sleeping peacefully next to your love. Are you? Yes tired, mad, done, ready, ready for it to burn. Are you ready for the flames? That's what I said to my daughter this morning. That's what I said to my daughter this morning.
0: The following week, after Kat gave this speech, news broke that Alameda County District Attorney Nancy O'Malley had agreed to reopen the case against the cops who killed Oscar Grant. Although one person, former BART officer Johannes Meserle, was charged with involuntary manslaughter, the new focus will be on former BART officer Anthony Peroni, who was dismissed from the force, but never charged for his role in the killing. Cat Brooks, your time and your effort is more appreciated than you know. Thank you. To keep up with Cat Brooks and all that she has going on, follow her on Twitter at Cat's Commentary or catch her on KPFA Airwaves every morning from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. The producer behind this magical moment called right nowish is Asal Asanipour. The esteemed production team is Jessica Plachik, Kiana Mogadam, and Rob Spake. Our engagement squad is Lena Blanco, Sarah Pineda, and Vita Kong. The KQED execs that make sure this is possible are Erica Aguilar, David Marcus, and Holly Kernan. Oh, while I have your attention, I need a favor from you. Once again, it's for you, our listeners, to go to KQED's audience survey and let us know what you want from us. And tell us a little bit about yourself. You can find all of that at kqed.org slash podcast survey. Once again, I'm your host, Pendarvis Harshaw. Thank you for listening. Y'all be well. Peace. Right Now-ish is a KQED production.